Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions, to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest podcast. Let's get started. Jessica Polito has spent her entire career providing M&A advice to the wealth management space. She founded Turkey Hill Management in 2021 to provide an alternative to the traditional investment banking model. By not charging success fees, she ensures complete alignment with the fiduciary she represents while still providing expertise, experience, and connections from a career in wealth management M&A. Jessica lives in Connecticut with her husband and four young children. Jessica, welcome to the podcast. Corey, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So listen, for anybody, whether they're in the wealth management space, and we have many, many clients and listeners, as you know, that are, but even if people aren't, the idea of somebody who does M&A, who doesn't charge the success fee is is going to be intriguing and fascinating. So (laughs) I want to talk about that and your experience and what you're seeing in the market. But before we go there, I want to take you back to when you were a little girl growing up, maybe 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because I, I, I'm guessing an M&A professional in the wealth management space wasn't it back then, but you tell me. So my first memory of telling anyone what I want to be when I grow up was at my little sister's birthday party in our backyard. I was probably younger than eight, maybe six uh-huh. or seven. Uh-huh. And there was an entertainer who came and she was singing songs. And it was about what you want to be when you grow up. And they asked me, the big sister of the birthday girl, and I confidently said, a waitress. I thought being a waitress, especially on roller skates, was just the pinnacle of a career move. (laughs) (laughs) I have had many service jobs in my career. Somehow, waitressing is not one of them. (laughs) And certainly not Um, on roller skates, huh? (laughs) It it has evolved over time. Funny, my, my dad is an entrepreneur. Um, so I had written entrepreneurship off, (laughs) even though the college that I went to is known for its entrepreneurship program, but I was in high school when I decided that I wanted to be an investment banker, though, to be perfectly honest, I don't think I know what it meant. (laughs) I thought it sounded cool and I knew they made a bunch of money. (laughs) So, you know, I went to college. I was very interested in investing and helping people. So I decided in college, either investment banking or wealth management. And then I graduated and realized you could marry the two. <laughs> and I felt like the luckiest person on the planet to, to get to have my hands in both. Well, it's, fun, it's funny what you said about, I was in this special law politics and community affairs program in Tilden High School in Brooklyn. And I decided I want to be a lawyer as a, in high school, you know, similar to what you were saying. And, and I always say the same thing. And that's what got me here, except I Still had no idea really what a lawyer did. I mean, we were doing mock trials and you know, whatever, but no, I mean, to do MA law, no, I had no idea. 
Great. One other question looking back. What was your first deal of any type? It could be something small as a kid or it could be something early in your career. What comes to mind as a first deal? Well, I mean, you're you're like bringing back uncovered memories from my childhood. So <laughs> I don't know that I have one specific answer for you, but I do know I had a little sister two years younger than me and everything among two sisters close in age is a negotiation. <laughs> Maybe I have her to thank for <laughs> where I am today. <laughs> my parents probably disagree. I think we, we age them too quickly, but especially as the older sister, you like to have the upper hand and you like to get your way. She's five inches taller than me. So brute force was not an option. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. All right. So you had to really learn diplomacy and negotiation. Yeah. Um, I guess so. <laughs> you see, I, I had, my brother's five years younger than me, so I had the advantage of brute force, but my parents prohibited it. Like there was a rule that I could not hit him for any reason whatsoever, which he knew and took great advantage of. <laughs> and now you are a negotiator for a living as well. So right. right. there's exactly. a common thread. <laughs> exactly. All right. Great stuff. So, all right. So listen, let's, let's talk about the present and what you do. And then we'll talk about, we'll go back and talk about how you got here. Because, you know, you've taken some unique approach, right, to, to M&A, which said in your bio, no success fees. Certainly, most of the folks that put M&A deals together and do some of the stuff you do, and I want, I want you to talk about what you do, do it in the context of a traditional investment banking model, whether that's in the wealth management space or outside of it, where, you know, they take some amount of retainer usually, and then they take a success fee on top of that. Sometimes they'll offset some of the retainer, all the retainer, whatever, against the success fee. But talk to me about your model, who you work with, and then we, you know, I want to know sort of how you got to this unique model. I think I can probably answer all of those questions without you having to ask it again. But if I forget, please step in. I mean, look, I guess I'll start by just giving away the secret sauce, which is that I don't have a big operation. I think there are a lot of investment banks who do an incredible job. I came from one of them. There are many others or a handful of others, intelligent people who really have a lot of experience to know what they're doing. And part of their jobs is to bring in 25-year-olds and 30-year-olds and help them rise through the ranks and, and learn the business, but they have costs associated with them, right? In addition to, you know, the Manhattan address and all of that and success fees go to help support the financial models under which most investment banks operate. I happen to be in a unique situation because I don't have a lot of overhead. So I don't have to whack up success fees the way that you would see at a traditional investment bank. You know, for, for better or worse, when you're working with me, all you're working with is me. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I guess, you know, you're not, there's no analyst that's crunching the numbers on my behalf. There's no associate who's reading over the business summary before it goes out. But in doing so, I don't have to charge a success fee. I'm able to charge a retainer fee. And financially, it ends up working out about the same. For me, it saves the client hundreds of thousands of dollars. But, but that's not really why I'm doing it. You know, I think if I were charging a success fee, people would pay it because that's kind of the only other option out there. The reason that I'm doing it is because when you think of a fiduciary, right? Like there are, there are many, many wealth management founders that I talk to who say, well, I don't sell insurance, Well, we don't have product because I don't want my clients to think that I'm aligned with making money off of them, right? I just charge a percent of AUM or a financial planning fee or whatever it is. And I do whatever is in the client's best interest. Yeah. And when you think about the M&A advisor that has to represent the fiduciaries, 
I think it should be the same. Mm -hmm. So by removing the success fee, I don't care if you sell to the highest bidder. I don't care if you walk away halfway through negotiating a purchase agreement. All I care is that we're doing it for the right reasons. And the client, whether they're on the buy side or the sell side, feels fully confident in the decision that they're making yeah. because it's one of the biggest decisions of their lives. You know, you get married, you have kids, you buy a house, whatever. You're probably only going to sell your business once. And, you know, as a buyer, like you have limited resources to do deals, right? It, it works on both sides. I don't want a buyer asking me, well, are you telling me that I should add another half turn to the EBITDA multiple because it's the right thing to do because it's market or because you're going to get a bigger success fee if I do it, right? Yeah. So that's the soapbox that I stand on. <laughs> and well, in terms of, of clients that I work with, yes, I, I kind of assumed when I started that I was going to be working with the smaller firms that maybe were only going to sell for a few million bucks and didn't want to pay a banker, you know, half a million dollars to have it done. I say this all the time. It turns out the bigger the firm, the bigger the success fee. And no one is particularly happy writing a $2 million check either. So I have been humbled <laughs> by my client list, by the interest that what I'm doing has received, the fact that I have the opportunity to work with buyers and sellers. It's been amazing. Honestly, it's, it's, it makes my job so exciting. And it makes me so happy to walk into my home office, <laughs> no overhead, and do what I do every day, knowing that I get to do it for what I feel are kind of the right reasons. With a diverse client base, it's it's awesome. Love it. So, so let's drill down a little more. So talk to me about the range. And I gather it's a range. And same with us. We do some smaller deals. We do some very big deals. What's, you know, what's the range in terms of deal size or, or company size, you know, on the buy side, on the sell side, in terms of what you handle? So because there's no success fee, I don't have like minimum sizes necessarily. Yep. What I like to say is that I'm very good at almost nothing, but what I am very good at, <laughs> I'm very good at. So what I don't do are lift outs, for example, yep. because there are people who dedicate their entire careers to helping with lift outs. I don't think you need my services to like put together a revenue share. Same thing, you know, kind of like one guy who's operating out of Excel who's just overwhelmed, you know, like that's not, it's not really a sale, right. Or an acquisition. That's really kind of someone who needs an employment contract. <laughs> so I don't do that. My background is equally focused in wealth management and asset management. In this iteration of my career at Turkey Hill, I focus solely on wealth management. To me, asset management, institutional firms, right. Are product driven which is not dissimilar from, you know, not financial services, right? It's like if the, if the product is good and performing well, you're going to get money. And if it starts performing pro poorly, the consultants are going to take it away, right? Wealth management, I mean, what I hear over and over again is like, yeah, well, I talk to my clients for five minutes about what their investment portfolio looks like. And then we get on to, you know, how their kids are doing and how close they are to retirement and all that. And that's it's personality driven, which is what I like and where I think I kind of can add value. So it's true wealth management. It's not really, you know, broker dealers, unless it's a broker dealer buyer who is interested in entering the wealth management space, like something like that could work. I don't deal with alternatives. You know, I think there are people that specialize in hedge funds, buying hedge funds, like that kind of thing. And 
I don't need to be the best of everything. I don't really do valuation work unless yeah. it's specifically related to a transaction. Because again, there are people who are really, really good at it. They'll charge you less and they'll do a better job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but in, so in terms of the scope of what you do, do, and then I want to talk about like the market and lessons and deals and things like that. Uh, you know, so let's talk about what investment bank, what people traditionally think investment bankers would do, right? But what they do is they they help find buyers. If you're a seller, they they potentially help find sellers. If you you know if you're a buyer, they help, especially on the sell side. You know, help sort of you know package, right? You know, the the, the company for presentation and for sale. They investment bankers often talk about creating a process, right? You know, where they get bids and you know and and that kind of stuff. Some of them do valuation work internally. Some of them send it out. They do some level of deal structuring. That's sort of where the investment bankers and the attorneys start to overlap, right? And if the good ones work together well on that. So in terms of that range of things that investment bankers do, what of those, if anything, or if all of them, and I sort of know the answer, but for the audience, what, you know, uh, what are, you know, what's the range of, of what you do cover? So for better or worse, all I know is investment banking. <laughs> So, I mean, what I say is like, I, I can help in any section, right? Like if, if you have already signed an LOI, but you know, you want to make sure that you're not missing anything because you've never done this before and just need help negotiating the purchase agreement or, you know, help understanding, you know, the due diligence list or whatever, like I'm, I'm happy to just kind of like plug in. And I think my model allows for that flexibility, but by and large, what I'm doing is no different than if you were to hire a traditional investment bank. It's, you know, on the sell side, you've decided that it's time to sell your business. So now what, you know, and we, and, you know, we do the whole thing. We, we put together a business summary. We come up with a prospect list. We're reaching out on your behalf, having preliminary meetings, soliciting proposals, going exclusive, doing due diligence, negotiating the purchase agreement from a business standpoint, because you definitely need a M&A attorney to help you on the legal side <laughs> and getting getting to signing. On the buy side, I mean, it's, it's basically just that, but flipped. Yeah. So putting together marketing collateral, coming up with prospect lists, coming up with proposals, doing the modeling and so on and so on to get to signing. And you can pick out anything that comes to mind on the buy or the sell side. What what are the mistakes that that firms make that either have them not successfully close a deal or maybe adversely affects the evaluation or you know what what are some what are some of the mistakes that that folks make out there? Well, okay, I guess I'll start with the cliche, which is that momentum is always your friend in deals. So a big problem that happens is you know you get halfway through and then you get cold feet, decide to take two months off and then things kind of just like slowly fall apart. I think that's actually somewhere where advisors can help. They kind of keep the momentum going. Often founders or owners are so overwhelmed by their day jobs that taking on a second job, selling their firm, you know, it's exciting and it's lucrative, but it's hard to keep up the momentum when it's quarter end, when, you know, your CFO is on vacation, whatever. So having an advisor kind of sherpa you through the process, make sure that, you know, things aren't falling by the wayside, helps to get a deal done. Yeah. What I try to advise all of my clients, because um, things start getting, as you know, very well, emotional and deal fatigue starts to set in once you're at the point where you're exclusive and you are dual pathing due diligence and the negotiation of a purchase agreement. Yeah. Uh, and it's usually when you get down to the negotiations of things that are never going to happen. <laughs> so 
but have really severe consequences if they do, that people start to get really, really frustrated. And the advice that I like to give is you're joining this organization, right? Or, or this organization is becoming part of your organization. You have to think not only about what's best for you, but about how you want them to handle future deals once you guys are together, <laughs> you know? So it's very easy to get bogged down on details and feel like you're being penalized for no reason or whatever. When you're able to take a step back and kind of look at the big picture and why you're even at this point in the first place, it becomes a lot easier to, to put perspective on what's left to negotiate. And I find that often it really, really helps to get the deal to completion. Love it. Let's talk about, you know, you focus in the wealth management space. We, you know, we do deals across industries, but our biggest single niche by far is, is the wealth management space. So we, so let's talk about what you're seeing in the market out there, because, you know, I did this special series with some of the top aggregators and integrators, like, you know, the, the, the Mariners and the Saturdays and the Wags and the, you know, on and on and, you know, the high towers and I have the CEOs on. And, you know, this was over the last one, it was over a few months, but it was the last one was a few months ago. So, you know, the market's continuing to move, but asking them, they were all optimistic about the future. You know, we, we had a discussion, there was sort of a consensus agreement that we're in the early innings of a nine inning ball game in the RA space, right? What's maturing, private equities coming in, all that kind of stuff but it's still pretty early, maybe like third inning, you know, out of nine, right? But there was some short-term headwinds, right? You know, interest rates going up, cost of capital going up, you know, stock market being, you know- Predictable. <laughs> you know, and from their point of view as buyers, they, you know, they all said, well, we still have great deal flow. We're very optimistic. And I'm not saying that they don't believe that or they're, they're wrong in any way, but of course they do have a vested interest in, 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 in saying that. Uh, I know what our experience has been, which I, We'll wait to share because I don't want it to influence. But it's an interesting, you know, it's an interesting time and interesting combination of what a lot of us think is, you know, over the medium and long term, certainly, you know, continued growth due to demographics and the fact that we still have plenty of breakaways coming in and the fact that it is early, you know, but some headwinds up front. So what have you seen, you know, after coming out of a couple of years of craziness, what have you seen lately in terms of deal volumes, deal structures, valuations, that kind of stuff? Oh boy. Okay. Well, I agree that there will always be a place for M&A, which I think is kind of what you were alluding to in so many words. I mean, CityWire just came out with an article recently that said, I think it's like 15,000 RAs in existence right now. I mean, like eventually everyone's going to hit a point where uh, they don't have a succession plan in place and need to transact. <laughs> so I think, you know, there will, there will always be deal flow and there will always be you know, a steady stream of acquirers out there who are able to solve for succession or whatever else. So, yeah. So, I mean, I don't think, you know, on a macro level, M&A is going anywhere. In terms of what's happening in the market right now, I mean, the chatter among, you know, my peers and just people that I talk to is, you know, do you think valuations are going to go down? And I think the answer to that is that, no, they're not going to go down. But I think educating the public on what constitutes a multiple <laughs> may help may help expectations and align, especially sellers with the broader market. You know, I think during the pandemic there was such an, a feeding frenzy for M and A, and the headlines had all of these crazy double digit multiples, but no one took the time to say, well, that's because you have to achieve 
30% growth without the help of market, <laughs> right? Or, you know, yes, but it, it lasts, you know, six years or what, like, you know, nothing, nothing like that is as good as it sounds. So I think sellers are becoming more educated. Yeah. I think buyers are doing a good job of holding steady and not reacting to the fact that there are certain sellers that think they can get, you know, 18 times for their 400 million AUM business, which is great. You know, what I've seen a little bit of is a shift from growth-based earnouts to retention payments, which is nice because while it's not guaranteed money, it's certainly more likely to be achieved than kind of setting your sights three years out and hoping that you know, if market is included, the market doesn't tank. And if it's not, you know, you're able to keep your referrals up and grow the way that you think it's going to, which is great. I think what we're also seeing, as you alluded to, is an interest in the wealth management space by private equity, which is wild. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Wealth management is an annuity, right? I mean, clients are sticky. They don't go anywhere. It's affected by the market a little bit, but by and large, revenues are much more likely to increase over time than decrease. Yeah. Um, so it makes a whole bunch of sense from the private equities perspective, but what it's doing obviously is it's funneling a lot more capital into the wealth management space to fund acquisition from a seller's perspective. I mean, it's great because there are more buyers than ever before from a buyer's perspective, the game changes a little bit because you have to work harder to differentiate yourself. You know, like the way that the industry is headed Every wealth manager worth knowing is going to have, you know, estate planning and trust services to one degree or another over the next handful of years, because it's just becoming so ubiquitous, right? Like you kind of have to have it in order to be competitive. So having it isn't necessarily a selling point anymore, (laughs) you know, and you can't use the word culture because everyone's sick of using that word. So the question is like, how do you differentiate yourself as a buyer in a way that a seller can, can understand it? looking through a deck or reading an email that you sent them for the third time or within, you know, the first 30 seconds of, of talking to you or, yeah, which is interesting. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it, that was really uh, one of the big motivations of me doing that special series on the podcast, because I've been doing this long enough in this, in this space for 25 years, where in the beginning there was, there were no real buyers. There wasn't really much of an MA market. There was certainly no private equity. And now there's this great thing called an abundance of choices, like you said, but you're right. But now the challenge is confusion. Like, how do, what, you know, what's the difference between that one and that one? Why, why would I go with, you know, I just, I actually just had a conversation with a prospect who's about to become a client who's looking at alternatives and they're like, okay, well, what, you know, like, how do I, how do I figure this out? So, you know, ha- having, having the CEOs on, from some of the top integrators and aggregators, you know, they got to explain their model and now it's a piece of content. At least, you know, it's a start, right? But at least on the nine or 10 of them I had on, people can hear it from the from the horse's mouth, so to speak, and start to get a feel. But then, you know, it's it's even become more important, frankly, of professionals like us. And I think helping clear confusion in the marketplace is crucial now. In fact, I, I'll, I rarely plugged my own stuff, but we just got the Wealthies Awards, uh, you know, coming up in September. We just got picked as a finalist in the legal uh, category for this the series we did, you know, for the special series we did on the podcast, solely for that reason, because it's needed, like you know, helping folks understand is needed. But so, you know what's, you know what's yeah. funny? I don't, I don't mean to distill it down to it being this simple because it's not, but 
when you take a step back, I mean, what differentiates one wealth manager from another, right? Like it, it's not dissimilar from being a high net worth individual sitting down with three people who all say, we offer trust in the state. We're going to help you with your, with your taxes. You know, we have these three model portfolios, whatever, but you meet with three of them and you click with one of them. Right. So right. at a certain point, I mean, not to, not to use the word culture, because I, I do think that that doesn't really encompass what I'm trying to say, but you know, you can differentiate yourself as much as possible, but the reality is every firm has a different flavor. And I mean, unfortunately you have to choose one or two representatives to reflect the flavor of the entire firm when they go out and meet with potential acquisition targets. But if they're able to do it properly, it's not that hard, you know, to walk away after meeting for an hour and say, man, if the rest of the company is like this person, I hope that they understand the economics and they're not too far off from the top because boy, do I want my clients to work with these people. Yeah, I agree. I find that it comes out. I mean, obviously there's, there's a, usually, you know, a, a, a first vetting before that, you know, just, you know, can they accommodate your business model? If you have brokerage, do they do that as well? Can they, right. whatever, do they, you know, you have clients with a lot of alts, can they, whatever it is, whether it's on the best possibly, or they're doing cash deals or a lot more bigger piece of equity, does that appeal to you? You know, so you, you get you get through some of that, but then once you narrow it down to find the models that fit you, then it's exactly, that's what it comes down to, right? People ultimately make the decision, especially, I think in all cases, the great thing about this industry is that folks, even if they're not staying around for a while, even if it is a succession deal, they care about their clients and their employees. So they, they care anyway. And certainly if they're going to be joining and, and being around for a while, that's ultimately the decision maker once they've narrowed it down to the pool that's the right fit for that model, which is great. This idea of, you know, like why, why you, right? As a buyer, why would somebody go to you? And, you know, I have clients that many clients that are below that rung of the top, you know, of the PE funded aggregators and integrators. And, you know, the question for them on how they compete on the buy side is, you know, even more fascinating, right? Because they don't have PE money to, to right. throw around. They don't have equity that at least is promised or, or, or sold, you know, to be, oh, it's going to be hugely valuable. And, um, and, you know, the first thing I do say to them is, listen, you got to figure out your value proposition. It's very similar. You need a value proposition out to your clients and to your potential clients. All right. This is different. But if you want to attract a candidate's fee to buy, you've got to, you know, it's like, why you? And being a great place to work and a great place to be and have a great culture is not a distinguisher, like you said. So I'd be interested in, in, in that, you know, that from you, like, so if you're not a PE back, you know, you, you know, you, you're not one of those huge PE back firms, right? You could throw a lot of money and promise valuable equity to a buyer. How are some of those firms? Because I know you do deals with, you know, with the big boys and you do and girls and you do, you know, deals with, the, you know, like we do with, you know, with smaller acquirers. How does some of those firms that don't have that PE backing distinguish themselves and become attractive, you know, other than being great people? <laughs> well, I mean, look, if, if you don't have a ton of capital to spend, then you're probably not doing a bunch of deals, right? You're probably doing one deal that's going to make a huge impact on your firm. Yeah. And I think that in and of itself <laughs> helps distinguish you from yeah. the serial acquirers because I mean, you have no choice but to be incredibly earnest, you know? Like in all likelihood, the first meeting is going to be with the CEO, not with the biz dev guy. And it immediately sets a different tone, especially yeah. if, you know, the, the target that you're talking to 
has entertained conversations from some of the bigger buyers who are, I'm sure, knocking down their door because that's their jobs, right? I mean, the, the big acquirers, obviously they have organic growth and they have huge marketing campaigns and all that, but one of the drivers of their growth is an acquisition strategy, right? Sure. And typically, you know, the CEO as a company to run <laughs> and like, you know, it is not spending three hours a day talking to prospects. If you are a, you know, $2 billion shop with a little bit of money to spend on something that's going to be transformative for you, you're going to put a lot of effort into it. Obviously, you know, you can hire a banker, an advisor, whatever, to take some of the, the work off of your plate right? Yep. To go out and come up with a prospect list, make the initial calls on your behalf and, you know, call it down to the people who are actually interested in talking to you. But as soon as that list is called, it's really up to you, you know? And if you're the founder of this firm or you're the president or whatever, I mean, you care so deeply about the firm and you may care deeply in a way that the next $2 billion firm with some money to spend cares, right? I mean, it, it doesn't have to be the same type of care. It doesn't have to be the same personality. It doesn't have to be the same anything, but you're going to want to jive really well with whoever is like picking up what you're putting down, <laughs> you know? So in, in a case like that, I mean, you almost have to worry about differentiating yourself less, which is counterintuitive, but I mean, yep. not, not really when you think about it. Yeah. I mean, we had a client, we've done a number of deals uh, for in the, in the Midwest and like the, differentiated was like, oh, we're basically not the coastal aggregator, <laughs> right? Right, right. <laughs> no, no, you know, now, obviously, they built upon that. They said, you know, we have Midwestern values and we're family. And, you know, we want people who are going to be here for a long time. We're not just looking for people who cash out. You know, so they built on that. But the fundamental di distinguisher for them was we're not that. <laughs> you know, yeah. we're, not, we're not the coastal aggregators. Yeah, not that there's anything wrong with the coastal aggregators. No, no, know? not at like, all. They have it's just... Different. Incredible business models, and they're doing a lot of things right and really, really well. 100%. Some people like it, some people don't, and it's it's yeah. nice that there are options. Well, that's right, that's right, and and I I really believe in that because I think there's a place for everybody. I mean, listen, you know, one of the other things we do a lot of is breakaways, right? Brokers out of buy houses and banks, trust you know, and and we believe in the independence movement. I've been doing it for years. We work with hundreds of advisors, but I believe that. Is like the wirehouses exist for a reason. And there are a lot of advisors who should never, ever leave a wirehouse. Okay. Yeah. And I don't mean that in any kind of derogatory, judgmental way. It's just that that model fits certain clients and it fits certain advisors, right? And certain advisors, you know, there are many advisors, like many employees in other industries who should never become entrepreneurs and run their own firms just because they don't have that kind of interest or ability or skill or whatever. And, you know, and they're, they're great advisors, but, you know, being an entrepreneur is different. So, you know, so, so I, you know, I believe the same thing in terms of the models of, you know, of, of the acquirers. I think there's definitely a space and we have great relationships with a lot of the big serial acquirers and feedback acquirers, but we also work with some of these firms that are not that, who are looking to grow and all of it's possible. I, I use the example of, of me and my husband all the time. He has spent his entire career in bulge brackets and he's so good at it. And I sit by myself all day long and I love it, <laughs> you know, and both of us are, are bringing income into our house and, you know, putting food on the table. They're just two, two completely different ways to do it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Nothing wrong with it. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. 
Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. This is an open-ended question, and if you don't have it, I'll put you. Any just fun deal stories, you know, interesting deal stories, obviously without any names or identifiable, whatever, you know, but anything interesting recently that would be fun to hear about? Well, let me answer that. It's sappy, but it's true. Okay. It's not fun. Like, I'm not going to make you laugh. It's not, a fun, it's not funny, but it's true. It's honest, which is that since starting Turkey Hill two and a half years ago or whatever it was, I have been extraordinarily lucky to choose my clients. Yeah. And I have, I have a vetting process that is not much different than I'm sure most advisors have, which is, you know, do I, do I believe in what you're trying to do? Do I think that I can, you know, do a good job for you? And is it exciting to me? I'm, I'm one person and I'm capacity constrained. And in order to, to make sure that I continue to wake up in the morning excited to do my job. I have to work with people that I really, really like. So I have been very lucky to have my hand in some interesting stuff. Nothing that I think I can talk about right now, unfortunately. <laughs> had a nice write-up in the press not too long ago on a nice size deal you did, right? That's they public. Were, they were wonderful people. Really, I mean, that was just a tremendous deal to work on. Just really, really good people. Why don't, you share, why, don't you share, why don't you share quickly on that for the people who haven't seen the press? Like what, you know, the, what, obviously nothing that's not public, but, but uh, who was who that deal? Uh, that was Stillwater Investment Management and they sold to Dakota down in Florida. Just really, really good people on both sides of the deal that made it so so enjoyable to work on. I mean, just going back to what what I was saying earlier about being able to take a step back and look at it from the other person's side. I mean, they could they could do a TED talk. <laughs> if, if there was ever a partnership that I believed in, like these guys are gonna do great together. That was such a nice one to work on. But I mean, and and, and that kind of goes to what I'm saying, you know, like I, I feel very lucky to be able to work with people who I really, really believe in either their mission or their goals or them as human beings, which is just awesome. That's great. Yeah. I mean, listen, it is one of the benefits. And I say this a long, long time you know, ago, I uh, so you know, one of the benefits of having your own firm is that you can choose, you know, now, unlike you, you know, I, when I started my firm now, we're going back over 30 years ago. Yeah, you you figure out how to start a fire and then you build a law firm. Exactly. <laughs> Is that right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> now, it, it was the it was the ancient times. Like we actually had, <laughs> I actually had like wire, you know, computer. So I had a server closet with you know computer, <laughs> you know, whatever. And you know, for me, I you know, I was also 30 years old and you know, and had been at big firms where they don't really they discourage you actually developing business. So I started with nothing. And so in the beginning, you know, maybe you're, you know, in that situation, you could be a little less selective. But I remember a few years in only where I had quickly built it up. The first time I I was like willing to fire a client who was not ideal for me, meaning like they, they just were not respectful, you know, they were whatever, like I didn't, I didn't drive with them, it was the most freeing feeling in the world. Because obviously, when you work for somebody, you don't get to choose who you work on always, you know, and I was like, you know, wow, like that, that really drove it home that I can work with whoever I want to work with. And it was actually one of my biggest clients. It was pretty lucrative, but it was just un unreasonable and, you know, crazy. And I'm like, 
I'm not, I'm not doing it. Right. So it is a great feeling to be able to do well, that. You get to, I mean, you provide better advice Yes. when you feel really good about the people that you're working with. Yeah. You know, not that, not that, you know, you or I or anyone else would ever intentionally lead someone down a wrong path. Um, but you know, you know, you, you think about it in the shower, right? Like you think about it as you're going to sleep and, um, you know, you do that for people that you want the best outcome for. Yeah. Yeah. What have I not asked you that might be interesting, whether it's about what you're doing, about the market, about what you see, anything? Good question. I guess one thing that I don't think I've spoken about publicly that I think is just very important now that we have a captive audience to, to, I guess, just, you know, help educate anyone who's contemplating a sale specifically is that the exploration of a deal is free or, I mean, not free, look, you're, you're paying a retainer or whatever, but I think, I think what holds a lot of people back from deciding that they're you know, going to go out and find a partner is getting over the hurdle of like, oh my God, I'm, I'm going to put my firm up for sale. That's so scary. Right. And then what if it leaks? What if I don't find anyone I like? Like, you know, like there, there are so many what ifs and scary things along the way. And what I like to tell people is like, look, we're going to know within two or three months, whether there is a market out there and whether there are people who you feel like you can do a deal with. And you can be halfway through negotiating a purchase agreement and decide it's not for you and walk away for any reason. And the only thing that you've wasted is a few months of your life. Nothing is done until a purchase agreement is signed. Unless you do something really terrible. <laughs> they, they <laughs> right? uh, but by and large. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and I think it's just important for people to know that you're able to kind of walk down the path. Yes, I mean, it is it is a time commitment. It, it ebbs and flows in the amount that you're needed over the course of, you know, putting information together and looking for proposals and having meetings and all of that. But it really is an exploration. It's not a commitment, you know, until you are 100% confident that you're ready to commit. Yeah, I love that. It's great advice. So uh, I'm trying to think about anything before I ask you my final two questions. All your clients come from referrals, you know, at this point, generally, you know, obviously you've got a business model that distinguishes, we talked about how advisors distinguish themselves, whether it's with their clients or for potential deal partners. You have, One of the things that distinguishes you, obviously, is your business model. I know you've been in the industry of contacts, but what, what do people, what do you generally get your clients? It's 100% referrals. I have a LinkedIn presence, you know, I've, I've been in news articles, you know, podcasts, speaking engagements, whatever. I like to say like either, either you're going to hire me or you're not. A lot of it is personality driven. You know, I, it's, you don't need a, a degree in rocket science to do M&A. You de- do need to have a personality that people feel comfort <laughs> and that, you know, you're not, you're not going to, you know, embarrass yourself or them or do something stupid, but I have been very fortunate that I have not had to drum up business yet. I think the biggest referral compliment that I have received to date was from opposing counsel, <laughs> like on another deal. I'm like, man, that, that was kind. <laughs> that really says something. <laughs> no, yeah. When you get anything from the other side of the table, that's, that's phenomenal. Yeah. I, I, I've had a few times in my career where actually the firm on the other side of the table and they're hiring me for their next deal. Right. Because they were like, I'm like, okay, that. No, no, was I too soft? You cannot beat that, right? Good stuff. All right. Well, if people want to find out more about you and, and, and your firm, which I'm sure they will, I mean, you know, one of the things that before I, 
finish that question. I one of the things that I love, I mean, it's the same thing we were talking about before. I love the fact that wealth managers in the industry have all these options for for buyers and what. But I also I also love like again, there's different models, right? So some people will, in terms of you, right? So, some people will be more drawn to an investment bagger, even though they have to pay a success fee because whatever they want a bigger shop or they want whatever attracts them to it. But you have a distinguished model that, that obviously, you know, that, that that some folks will and have clearly, you know, been drawn to as well. So for me, it's great because I, I like to have options for my clients as well, because you do all kinds of different people, different clients, different priorities, and to have quality options for them is great. And so I really appreciate what you're doing. Where, where can people find out more information about you? Well, my website is terrible. <laughs> I am, uh, I'm relaunching one at the end of September. So we are actively working on, on some copywriting and I don't know. Some, the, some the, the classic shoemaker's like you, You're too busy working, you know. problem with being a, you know, a, a small business. Like you gotta, you gotta do all this stuff <laughs> outside of your day job. So I do have a website, turkeyhillmanagement.com. It's not great but it's there and you can, you can reach me there. You can, I'm kind of give, kind of provide my email address, Jessica, yeah, sure. managementcom You can yeah. send me an email. I post videos on LinkedIn once a week, just trying to help demystify M&A and educate the general public. So you can find me there. And then I pop up here and there in, in conferences on panels and awesome. in news articles. I don't know. Google my name. <laughs> Hopefully nothing bad comes up. <laughs> Excellent. So my final question on the podcast is always about my highest value in life, which is freedom. And for me, that means everything from freedom in the world, from, for all people from oppression, to why I've been an entrepreneur for 30-something years and I haven't had a boss. What does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? Um, well, I did start a company <laughs> out of an investment banking background. So on a personal level, where I'm at in my career and, and everything that came before it, the freedom that I currently get to enjoy from a professional standpoint is the fact that I have, I have four little kids, they're two, three, four, and six, and I get to have dinner with them every night. Uh-huh. I get to do something that I am good at. I get to work with good people and I don't have to sacrifice watching my kids grow up, which is pretty great. <laughs> especially as a female in finance, you know, it's not, these opportunities don't present themselves very often. And I was fortunate to be able to create it for myself, but not without putting in the sweat equity leading up to it. So that's pretty cool. I think from a a advisor standpoint, and perhaps this is a little bit counterintuitive, oftentimes it's finding a partner. (laughs) It's having a boss for the first time in 30 years. And the reason that I say that is because you're able to free yourself from everything that's taking up your time. So, you know, being able to relinquish payroll and, you know, compliance and whatever else, managing people, whatever, whatever it is that you don't like doing so that all of a sudden you have the freedom to go back and do what you started this business to do in the first place with the added benefit of having time to spend with your family or on your hobbies or whatever else. Is that a good answer? <laughs> and I love that. I, 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 you know, I particularly love that answer because one of the reasons why we reformatted the podcast after year one. So this question has been going in the last three and a half years of podcast. And the reason I love asking it is, first of all, because it is my highest value. So I'm, I'm always interested in it. But, you know, you get different people from their different perspectives, their different times in life. It means something different to them. Right. And it's, you know, and it's always fascinating. And I love that contrast. Right. 
like, you know, conscious to me, like not having a boss for 30. But yeah, I mean, that's definitely the case with, with deals. We do a lot of the drivers for folks who, who have been entrepreneurs and had that type of freedom and identified with it as freedom for a period of time. They get to a certain point where they're they were looking for a different type of freedom. They're no longer free. Yeah. yeah right. Exactly. You know, free. Right. Yeah. Freedom from and freedom means something different for them, you know, and, and being able to just focus on their clients or being able to, you know, whatever it is, and getting a lot of stuff taken away is freedom. You know, and I think that is a driver for a lot of people. And I love the fact that you gave both. I mean, and one of the things that I do particularly love, and it's funny because I don't I, I usually just end after people give their and thank people if they give their, their definition of freedom, but you know, I really liked yours for a number of reasons, including the fact that you had that twofold, right? And and one of the things that I'm encouraged by, I mean, we're not where we need to be, but I think, you know, one of the benefits of COVID and some of these other things are that the world has become more accepting of different business models and remote work and the ability, you know, and for me personally, it's really inspiring that people have more of these options. And you're an example of that. I mean, four kids under six, I mean, and, and, and running an M&A advisory business at a sophisticated level with great clients and be able to have, you know, have it all, so to speak. I'm sure there's challenges. I'm not saying it's easy, but, uh, you know, to have, to have all of that is, you know, it's inspiring. Yeah, we'll sit around my dinner table and you might disagree with the freedom aspect of things. <laughs> I'm confident one day it'll pay off. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, Jess Polito, thank you for being such a great guest on the DealQuest podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.